Hi, Gayatri. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's such a joy and pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm going to start by asking a very simple question. Where are you from and where do you live? Well, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Because literally I wrote a book to answer those questions. Um, currently, I live on the sacred lands of the Muscogee Creek people. That's uh, the area known as Atlanta, Georgia. I am originally, I'm a Punjabi Desi diasporic person who grew up all over the world. Uh, most specifically, I was born in Tanzania and my mother, my brother, all my immediate biological family live in the capital city of Botswana, known as Habaroni. So it's kind of a long story. Quite a global footprint, I would say. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> and of course, I have a lot of family in India, in Mumbai, but most of them are in the Delhi area and some in Punjab. People on Instagram know you as Desi Book Auntie. I'm Hunt curious, how did you settle on that name? You know, it's really a great question. So I used to joke about being a book auntie. You know, after I left academia, I used to be a college level professor and I used to teach children's literature courses. I used to teach teachers and I used to take students on study abroad excursions. So when I left academia in that job, I didn't leave my love for books. And so I would constantly be reading anyway, as if I still had a syllabus to prepare. And then I would share them on my Facebook. At the time, I wasn't even on Instagram. And I would just joke about, oh, here's a book auntie again. And one day I referred to myself as a Desi book auntie. And the brilliant author of uh, Sainthani Gupta said she loved that. She loved it. She confirming that she loved that phrasing was the motivation for me to start referring to myself that way. And then eventually I started the Instagram handle. Yeah, it definitely is catchy, especially for Desi uh -huh. readers out there. <laughs> uh, you know, I hesitate a little bit with the term Desi because it can have those negative connotations yeah, too, which is why in my profile, I say I'm a diasporic Desi, uh, Punjabi. And so I kind of specify some of those identities to avoid the notions of sort of like Desi being, you know, Indian, being, you know, Hindu, being restrictive, which I, you know, so I have complex overlapping identities. And I use the word Desi in a very expansive way to include, you know, the whole South Asian subcontinent, and then even people in places like Trinidad and Guyana. Like you mentioned, you couldn't leave the books behind. I'm curious, <laughs> is reading a lifelong hobby for you? You know, for a long time, I stopped reading, huh? It's kind of a, a long story, but for a long time I had, you know, maybe a mild brain injury of some sort or just maybe overwhelm from having been in academia and having had to do reading all day, every day for like a decade in the pursuit of my PhD and writing of my dissertation. So for a while I stopped reading. I couldn't even read 10 sentences without my brain hurting. And so really coming back to reading as a love and a passion is just a part of my healing journey. You know, it's like, the more I'm attracted to books and I'm reading, the more I'm remembering that I used to not read anymore because I was my brain and my spirit were just tired, especially because I was reading a lot of content that was required, right? Like to prove that you are a knowledgeable person who's a doctor's <laughs> AT. You have to read a lot of, you know, white male authors. And they really just, I just couldn't do it. Like my brain, literally I would open a book and I'd be like, huh. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. 
And so to come to this where I'm just surrounded by South Asian and brown and black authors and their books, and I just feel so much joy in those books that I share about. Trust me, if I don't love them, I don't share about them. And if you find a book right now that you don't really like, would you still finish it? No. Why waste your time? Yeah, I'm I'm on that now. Two years ago, I was that person who would torture myself because I started it. I have to finish it. But now I'm like, my time is precious. I, I don't want to do it. Exactly. And thankfully, there's just a whole like abundance of books available out there that are worth your time. So maybe focus on those. And really, usually in the first three or four chapters, if it hasn't captured my imagination, or if it's given me red flags, then I stop reading it. I remember a few years ago, there was this book called uh, Sympathizer. And it was Pulitzer Prize winner or something, but I could not connect at all. But I forced myself to finish it. I still regret that so much. Like I should have just dropped the book. I know a lot of people liked it, but I didn't. So I didn't need to read it. You didn't need to finish it to know that. Right? Like You have to trust your instincts when you're like, this isn't resonating for me. And then you just move on. I guess that's uh, still an important book because it taught me that, that I don't need to finish bad books. <laughs> I love how you I love how you phrase that because that's it like you know that did teach you something and let's not do that again let's not waste our precious time. (laughs) What's your favorite genre to read? Nonfiction written by brown and black authors that's very specifically addressing anti-racism social justice and lately I'm really trying to learn about abolition so anything written by black feminists and is nonfiction and very applicable to sort of the trying times that we're going through really captures my attention. And I read them. It's almost like a daily meditation practice. Is there an author that you really like these days? A lot of them. A lot of them. The The people that I look to for guidance, like in terms of like, what are they saying today that might be relevant, tend to be, as I described, the Black feminists. And so, you know, I, I pick up bell hooks and anything she writes regularly just for grounding and for perspective, right? So like, let's say this week I needed some perspective around, you know, the situation in India that is you know, a global issue. And then I also needed a perspective on, you know, anti-Black violence in the U.S. And so who would I go to who might have said something that was relevant that will help me figure out my place in this? And usually it's Bell Hooks. And she's still a living living legend, so to speak. And someone who's passed away, whose words I often rely on to give me that same, is Audre Lorde, who's a poet and an essayist. And pretty much anything and everything she says or writes will often give me that, like, if I need a mind shift, if I need to figure out a new perspective on something. Um, So those are two people I really rely on a lot and cite a lot and teach a lot. And like you mentioned earlier, you have written a book now. Did you always want to be an author? Yes and no. Uh, Listen, all my life, people did say to me, you know, in a very dismissive way, especially are they kin, write a book. And usually it's kind of like, stop, you know, it's dismissive, right? And so I never really kind of embraced that idea. 
And then I did write a book, right? I spent 10 years getting my brain very tired of reading and writing. And it's called a dissertation, but it's, you know, it's just collecting dust somewhere in some academic library, but I never published it, right? So if you mean write a book to be published, that's a more recent aspiration that's going to come to fruition. And it's been about four years in the making. I think it was about three or four years ago that I realized that what I had to say, there were people who wanted to hear it. What's it like to be a writer? Do you follow a routine? Do you have a very creative, moody process? How How's it for you? You know, each writer has a different answer for that. Um, I've listened to some of your podcasts. So, you know, for me, it is, I have a very full life of uh, commitments. Uh, I have teenage children. So writing comes to me every now and again. And when it does, I actually wrote the first drafts of elements of my book on my phone in sending myself emails. So like I would be sitting there multitasking and simultaneously a thought would come to me and I would write myself an email on my phone. And so that's how I do is, is that I don't wait for the right mood and the right time and the right ritual because my life isn't designed that way. So whenever it comes to me, I just do it. Um, I'm just impressed by the fact that when a thought came, you wrote it down. Because just the other night I was reading a book and I had this amazing thought and I was going to discuss with my co-host on my other podcast. And now the thought is gone. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know what it was. It was amazing. That's all I remember. I wish you would. So what I do is I keep notebooks handy. Oh, I have a lot of notebooks, Gayatri. My house is full of notebooks. Yeah. I, I think it's just laziness. I'm like, I'll remember it. I'll remember it. It's too good to forget. And I forget. I don't learn that. <laughs> so so this is uh, like that a lesson you learned by reading the book. <laughs> Abandoned. Yeah. lesson too is that, you know, I don't trust that I'll remember it later. So if I can, I possibly try to record it, even if it's just like jotted down notes or a text message that I send myself or Uh, an email. And then later on, so I mean, but that's the first thought is just capturing that thought, especially because I write in semi verse. So almost like, um, you know, our ancestral practices, uh, were like, right. So very often, it's something that I'm processing emotionally, and I have to write it down in order to emotionally process it. So the first draft is usually either a note to myself or uh, jotted down in one of those many notebooks like you have. And then I, I do make sure that I have time later to come back to it, which is why I will say that the current book, and by the way, I'm going to show it to you since you asked, it's like printed out, like we're doing the, the copy edits. Mm-hmm. So like for it to look like this has taken four years. So yeah. it's not even one that has binding yet, you know, <laughs> doing typesetting and uh, line edits right now. And did you face writer block during these four years? I don't believe in such a thing. And I'll tell you why. I think that uh, what we call writer's block is actually something else. I believe that there's usually something underneath the writer's block, right? So is it that we really care a lot about what other people will think about what we have to write? Is it that we don't really believe that what we have to say is valuable? You know, what is the block is often uh, what I kind of go to is that I don't believe there's such a thing as writer's block because it's a block, but what is it? (laughs) You know, what's blocking you? And usually it's a mental or emotional block. And so the times in my life that I did experience the writer's block was when I was dissertating and it took me a long time. And the first at least three drafts of my dissertation were rejected by my professors and advisors. 
And it was so painful each time because I had spent so much time in writer's block. Like literally I would sit in my computer and two hours would go by. No, really. And I had like not even managed two sentences and I was so hard on myself. And I think there was the block was because it had to look a certain way and sound a certain way. And I was blocked from writing it that way. So when I did the deep healing work that allowed me to start reading again, I also realized there's no such thing as writer's block. I love that. I love your perspective. That's the first time hearing such thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, but you really think about it, no? Like, really, like, what is the block? What is what is underneath the writer's block is usually something emotional or mental. Yeah, I think it's easy to say that I have writer's block, because then you don't have to go beyond that to figure out why you are blocked. You can just say, oh, I have a block, I'm gonna take a break or whatever your, you know, solution for that is. Yeah, there are a lot of concepts that come out of, you know, like, but, you know, uh, people who went to do masters in fine arts and learn how to write will fight me for saying these words because, you know, their professors and their MFA programs taught them that there is such a thing as writer's block. Like, it's a very specific thing. Now, my decolonial resistance to it is a clapback and is kind of really challenging. Who is it that's blocking us? What are the systems blocking us? What are the internal blocks? Uh, Because very often it's not just our own emotions, but it's because, you know, the systems are designed to block you and me from writing. There's that too. So I don't want to talk about writer's block. I want to talk about, you know, the fact that publishing so white is, you know, systemically unjust towards writers like us. That's so heavy what you just said, (laughs) because the system does place all the blame on individuals whenever something like this happens. And it's not just writer's block. It's so many other things. If you're struggling in poverty, it's your problem, but we won't address the systemic failures. So yeah, this this is amazing. This connection is amazing that you just made. Yes, really. I think I think we have to really interrogate what's a writer's block and what's a different kind of a block. You know, and then if we still choose to call it writer's block, then I respect that. But I think yeah, a lot I of feel things- like there is things like burnout and stuff, which is fine, which is normal. We are humans, and maybe that's what we can call writer's block, but if we are being made to feel like failures or something that we cannot write a certain way, that's probably a more systemic thing. Yes, exactly how you said it. I agree. Okay, moving on from this slightly heavy topic. (laughs) My next question is, if you were to be deserted on an island, which three books would you take with you? I would probably take the hidden words uh, which come from the Baha'i writings, and they're almost written like poetry. They're tr- they were originally written in Persian and Arabic. And so I, you know, my family is of both Hindus, and then I have Sikh ancestors, but I, my father and I, you know, we practice the Baha'i faith. And, and so that's the, it's like a holy text within, but it's written very much like personal guidance and like advice for living. So I would definitely bring the hidden words uh, with me because it would keep me sort of like, spiritually nourished and then I would probably bring one of the ones I mentioned before like maybe you know the collected writings of Audre Lorde and then I think the third book I could probably bring one of the ones from the stack over here that I'm currently reading like you know (laughs) one of those as well one from your TBR (laughs) yeah something something that's like radically hopeful right something that makes you want to like really like continue uh, while you're stranded to hope that you won't be stranded, right? Something like that. Yeah, definitely. You need hope. Mm -hmm. And in the end, if you were to pick 
one interesting life experience to share with us, what would you tell us today? You know, lately I've been thinking a lot about like travels because we haven't traveled and a person like me who hasn't gotten on a plane in like a year and a half, it's like, it just feels like a part of me is just really stifled. So I I would think about, uh, I think lately I've been thinking a lot about going to visit India with my children and my life partner. And we spent a whole month there and, and I pulled them from school that year and we were homeschooling and we spent a whole month in India. And I think it was really moving because prior to that, it had been more than two decades that I hadn't gone back because if I ever got on a long plane, I would go to Botswana to see my mom and dad and my brother. But that was a long overdue kind of reconciling to with kind of places that I had been disconnected from. And so I would spend a lot of time telling you about how meaningful that was and that, you know, reconnecting with relatives, but also seeing India through the eyes of a midlife person, (laughs) you know, because a lot of my trauma memories of India were as a young woman, you know, and I couldn't do anything without my male cousins coming with me. I didn't have mobility. I didn't have freedom. I didn't have a lot of ways to function because I felt so restricted. And so going as a midlife person who had money of her own and who is, you know, kind of like a mom of grown children, there was a different experience altogether. And I just was so thankful for that. I was so thankful that we had saved up time and money to do that. And I am grateful that I have that memory bank to draw upon. It's very interesting, though, differences between being a young girl in India and how now (laughs) you visited like two decades later. It it gives me hope of sorts, because whenever I think of traveling in India, there's always that safety concern that comes up for me, especially with reading all these news recently of stuff that's been happening. So now I'm thinking maybe a decade later, I could go (laughs) and travel. Yeah. And, you know, there's also safety in numbers. And there's, you know, I've really lately been interrogating our definitions of safety and what we call safety, you know. I mean, sure, there's like absolute risk, no matter who you are, and traveling at whatever age or whatever gender you are. And yet, you know, my experiences in India were so hard and mind opening as an adult, you know, so I was able to heal a lot of that anxiety that I'd had as a young person being there, you know, and also as a young person, I was told to do a lot of things. Yes. And I had to. And as an adult, I was like, But actually, I was like that as a teen, too. But, you know, like that didn't get me far. Uh, As an adult, you really you can just be like, whatevs. But also just, you know, my family is kind of disruptive. If you ever saw a picture of us, we don't look like we belong together. And here we were in (laughs) India going places, you know, and just really being open about the fact that a family like ours exists. And, you know, we, we claim that. And that was really healing as well. That's amazing. Sounds like a great trip. It it was challenging too, but mostly the memories are those of like learning and expanding. Well, thank you, Gayatri, for answering my 11 questions. And now we get to talk about your book, Unbelonging. Tell me a little more about what the book is about and why did you write this book? For a number of reasons. Um, I wrote it because identity can be weaponized. And we live in a time 
in India as well as in the US where certain aspects of identity are weaponized, right? Like policies are made to restrict us from having access or our very body is going out into public spaces because of what that identity is that you know is represented by what we look like. You know, I, I really like wrestled with a lot of things about identity and belonging for much of my life. Anytime I opened my mouth to say something about those things, people were like, oh, I'd never thought of that. Or they would say, oh, that makes no sense at all. So in some ways, I was tasked with trying to be clearer and trying to explain. And what it started to take shape as is verses and reflections, almost like journal entries. And then I realized that there wasn't a book like that out there right? Like there's heavy, like sort of theoretical academic reading that you can do about these topics. And then there's fiction that's written about these topics. Uh, Sometimes you'll see poetry, but what I did was I made a book that has elements of everything. It's there are pieces of academic constructs. There's pieces of poetry. There's pieces of reflection prompts. And so the pages also have a lot of blank space in them. For readers like you to be able to read the questions that I asked myself that I now ask the reader and then be there's blank pages in there in which you can write. Love that. Uh, Yeah. So it's an interactive kind of a book. Also, a lot of times when you hear about identity and identity crisis or you hear about it as a bicultural identity, and a lot of times the books that do exist talk about India or subcontinental South Asia, and then US or UK, like that dynamic. But a person like me has all of these other middle dynamics. So my book is in three parts. There's Desi-ish part, an African-ish part, and an American-ish part. So I talk about blended hybrid identities that aren't just dual. So multi-identified people very rarely you can read about that experience. Like those books, the traditional publishing has a very narrow scope for what our books are supposed to be like and say. And I went with a small independent press that gave me a lot of room to just say whatever, however. That's great. I think publishing also plays a big role in what we get to read. Um, It does. uh, There's a lot of, as we were saying earlier, there's a lot of blocking of certain, you know, kinds of things. It's, it's, it's very narrow what we're supposed to be right. Like, and multi-identified stories are very difficult to get through traditional publishing. But I'm so happy that you are getting published. And that's a celebration in itself. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm really grateful to the folks at Mango and Marigold Press. And one of the bragworthy things about this book, I have to tell you, is that the publisher herself is South Asian. (laughs) The person who did the cover is South Asian. The person who does the typesetting is, the person who did my line edits to check for grammar and stuff is. So it's an entirely brown South Asian team and that again in traditional publishing how are you going to manage that but that was my vision my vision was that every hand that touched the book would be one of us that's amazing that's amazing I love that that everyone was South Asian everyone was brown on the team we we intended it that way and it took it took some effort to make it happen (laughs) 
was my vision because it, otherwise it didn't make sense, right? Because there are still words in here that I don't explain. So for example, you'll, you know, you're so well read and, you know, in most books, like in traditional publishing, like if I used a Urdu word or a Punjabi word or what have you, I would have to either italicize it um, and that convention is shifting or I would have to give you a glossary and I don't yes. do it. I tell you in the note to reader up front that you'll see words and concepts you won't understand, but there's a blank page at the back. Write it down, look it up, create your own glossary. You see yeah, even book. for English, you might like, I don't know all the words when I'm reading the book, so I'll just look it up. So it yeah. should be a norm. Like if you don't know a word, you can look it, it up. Yeah. If you think about it, there are certain readers who have a sense of entitlement when they pick up our books. I recently just read two books, one with glossary, uh-huh. Um, and then another which was which would use a very actually very common Hindi word and then explain in the same sentence oh this is what it means and it threw me off so much I was like this is not a good reading experience well I, for us it's not because it's clear that there is a reader for whom it was intended yes yeah that made me realize this is for a non-Indian non-Desi reader clearly but then I'm not feeling I was included or appreciated as a reader in this you know, I can't wait for you to read mine. And I, I look forward to your honest feedback. Uh, because I designed it assuming that people reading it had cultural reference for this. Because not all South Asians speak Hindi. I mean, I yeah. knew that. But also, those are my languages. You know, and I have words in there in Setswana, which is a very little known, there might be maybe three or 4 million people in the world that speak it. And I included words in that and didn't, ex- didn't even tell you necessarily which language it was. <laughs> and so really, it's up to the reader to use the contextual sort of things, or maybe actually talk to a real human who speaks that language and ask them what it means. And sometimes context makes you understand what the word is trying to say. So if you're reading a lot of books, you, you have some sense about making sense of things. Yeah. And also, you know, for people like you and me, feeling alienated is kind of an all the time feeling, right? Like unbelonging is the title of my book. Well, unbelonging is kind of, you know, an alienation, right? And so if on the pages, you see things that make you feel alienated from what's on the pages, maybe you realize that's exactly how I live my life. (laughs) So there's also that design component to be like, hey, let me deliberately create some alienation in these pages for the reader. I mean, I understood for those authors that publishing, they were big publishing houses. So that's why they had to explain things that way. But then I also feel like I get so excited when there's a South Asian author. And then I go in and glossary, I'm still okay with because you can put it out of your mind once you saw it. And then you can just read the book as is. But when when it's explained in like mid sentence, like this is what it means. I'm like, okay, this is not a good reading experience. Not for us, it isn't. And I, I'm ready for books that don't do that, really. I'm, I'm ready for books that are for us, by us, created with us in heart and mind. Like, I'm ready for those. And it's beginning to happen gently and slowly with small independent presses, I think. But larger publishing it is still not there yet. I think they're still very much in, the, in sort of like assuming that the reader and the person spending money to buy the book is a certain person. and. I don't agree with that. I don't I don't agree that our books have to serve the purpose of feeding a white desire to read diversity. I agree. And I also agree there are a lot of entitled readers out there, which probably yeah. is why all shades and hues <laughs> <it's> happening. <laughs> 
Yes, yes, exactly. So this isn't that kind of a book. This is definitely for someone who's ready for uh, reflection, for, for something different in the sense of like they may not have encountered a book like this before. So, uh, and I also believe what we were saying earlier that, you know, each book is not for all readers. And so, you know, I always write it with sort of an affirmation in mind that may the readers of this book find the book, right? Like may, may the ones who really would appreciate it find it. So that's, I love it. Yeah, readers like you are really who I wrote it for. And uh, oh, thank I, you, Gayatri, in advance for writing for me. <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, it's, it's, you'll see. Well, you know, hopefully there's about three and a half months uh, before everyone can have access to it. Um, but the pre-orders are coming in now and um, I'm just ready for the ride to see what happens. I wish you all the best with it. I am sure people are going to love it because even just hearing you explain what the book is about, I already am waiting for it. I'm glad. I'm glad. And you do follow the previews because every few days I'll send a little excerpt or a preview just so the readers can kind of get a sense of what might be in there without too many spoilers. (laughs) That's a tricky balance, right? How much to give away. Yes. And it's the same with reviews, you know, like, I'll try to tell you just enough about the book that'll make you interested in looking it up yourself or borrowing it from the library. But I try not to do spoilers because it's one of my pet peeves that many of our bookstagram folks give away too much. Like, you just told me the entire story and everything that you feel about it. And I already know, so I don't need to buy the book. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't like long reviews for that reason, because you can't help but include a lot in those. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't do it that way in mine, specifically because it's my intention that we actually request them from the library or actually look at them ourselves. So I try to phrase things in a way that's inviting rather than a review. And speaking of books and reading books, a few weeks ago, I posted a book called The Night Diary, which is based on India-Pakistan partition that took place in 1947. And you had left a comment on there. So I wanted to bring that into our conversation today and ask you what your thoughts are on the subject, the book and partition in general. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really relevant because many times people, A, don't know about it because if if you're not really from the subcontinent and in fact, other parts of South Asia that weren't impacted by it often don't understand the dynamics or the history. You know, all my life when I have said the word partition, it's been one of two reactions. One, the people who were directly impacted by it, including my pa and ma, don't want to talk about it. There's still a trauma silence around it, right? And they want to yeah. dismiss it as, oh, that was long ago. Well, you know, the story of the Night Diary is very similar to the story of my life in the sense that when Vera wrote the book, she intended to write it for 12-year-olds, but it was like uncanny, the story she did with the twin children and the passing away of their mother. So my Naniji, who I never met, when my mom was one, it was partition, and she was she delivered twins, and the twins survived, but my Naniji passed away, and it was during oh, the time no. that they were fleeing Lahore. So it was very actively, and like if you can picture the most violent time where people were actively fleeing for their lives was when she delivered her children and passed away because it was not a doctor who shared identities. Oh my God, that sounds... So stressful and hard. It was traumatic. It changed the future of our entire lives in many, many ways. And the twins, so again, the twins survived in the refugee camps 
you know, in those days, I guess, as you start to do the research, you realize that even in the refugee camps, there were women who would nurse babies who had been separated from their moms. And this was a thing, you know, there were like yeah. there were nurses who nursed the babies. My twin uncles did not survive beyond maybe six months or so of life. Oh, so I sorry. ended up losing twin uncles and my mother became motherless at the age of one. And I don't think my mother ever, <laughs> I, I don't think my nanaji ever. I don't you know, think you ever can recover from that. It's, no, it's like and so many things happening at the same time, right? It's not just one bad thing that happened. It's like one after the other while you're going through this collective traumatic event. Yeah. And it's not over, you see, because what ends up happening, and then again, I learned this because as an adult, I started to learn more about partition because I wanted to know because nobody in my family wanted to talk to me about it. And I grew up in, you know, sort of places where I didn't have access to the elders to who might have been one, you know, like my mataji on my dad's side might have sat me down and explained it. She, you know, did not read English. Um, I, I do speak Hindian. I can hear Punjabi really well. I can hear Gujarati, but I wouldn't have been able to really fully converse with her in a deep way. And so I did not get her side of the story before she passed. And I think that there's still an ongoing trauma around that, because if you think about the last few years in sort of that part of the subcontinent, and even what's happening now, the partition wounds are still alive. They're still Very alive. So, yeah. I think a lot of our Sikh and Muslim kin in particular feel that, right? Because of the way India is now being defined in the current administration, you know, that the religious minorities and the people who are supposed to not be part of India are persecuted, literally. And so I think a person like me tries to raise awareness about the fact that the intergenerational trauma of partition is very real and it lives in me. And I'll talk about that in my book too. And also that it's not history and it's not separate from us. It's actually still here. Yeah, it's um, not so far away that we can call it history. There are people still alive who have like stories from that horrible time period. And I also know that for many of the people my age, like partition, like just even the idea of it. So I have another uh, Desi author friend who's Muslim Pakistani. And she says anytime she even sees the word partition, she gets really anxious. Like even seeing the word, let alone hearing stories. So, and that's another example of how it continues to haunt us and separate us, right? Yeah, like it's it's unprocessed trauma. Nobody got to process it, yeah. and it it was so horrible. If like I I don't want to go into details of it because it's all out there. If anybody wants to go read, yeah. but it was such a horrible time period just imposed on people. And politicians make their decisions based on whatever, but it's the common man that suffers and so many suffered and died. Yes. And the unhealed trauma continues to live on in us. And so, you know, there I, I did take to heart this feeling that just like we have generational ancestral trauma, we also have intergenerational ancestral healing. And so I chose to be the person in my family uh, to say, no, <laughs> we're going to heal this wound. We're going to talk about partition. We're going to learn about partition. We're going to heal those wounds. We're going to patch them up. We're going to remember that Pakistani people, Indian people, Bangladeshi people, Sri Lankan people were kin, right? Like we were partitioned 
<laughs> and I'm going to call into accountability the colonial forces that did it. I'm going to call into accountability all the intergenerational forces that continue to exploit it. And I'm going to say, you know, we're going to heal this. We're going to, we're going to heal it. And, and I love so you work at it vigilantly. And I have several verses in my book about it. I can't wait to read your book. The more you talk about it, more intriguing it becomes. <laughs> if your listeners want to get in touch with you or buy your book, where can they find you? So the best way is on Instagram at Desi Bocanti. Um, and uh, another way for them to reach me is I am on Twitter as Guide3Seti. And I, I tweet off and on, but it's not my favorite platform to be in touch with people. Uh, I think some of the people who, you know, really disagree with me find me there on DM. So I don't check those very much. <laughs> But that's, those are the two best ways, I think. Preferably Instagram. If they follow that public account, uh, then they can be in touch with me. And I would love to hear from them. And the pre-order link to my book is there. But also they can go to the Mango and Marigold Press. Uh, if they want to learn more about me and my biography and some of the courses I teach and things, they can find my website. So if you, if you Google my, my full name.com. Thank you for sharing, Gayatri. And thank you again for being my guest today. It was so great talking to you. I love starting May with you because I have been looking forward to this ever since you invited me. <laughs> I'm so delighted that you reached out to me. And trust me, when people ask me stuff, a lot of times I answer NAH. Um, <laughs> well, you, I think you can thank your username for that because I was like, Desi Bukanti, I have to talk to her. <laughs> You know, you. It's. It, I must have made a prayer. This is the thing. As part of the healing process that we were just talking about, I think in my heart, I I prayed that my kin would find me and that I would find them. Oh, I love this. Yeah. No, really, because if you think about it, like my core, uh, Beji. So I, I must. I feel very often connected to her as my ancestor, right? Like, so I'm aware of her experiences as a Sikh Punjabi woman in Lahore. Like, even though I've never met her, I have very few stories of her. But in my heart, like when I really think about that time and that place and my family, I, I think she's the one that sends me people like you. So <laughs> Bill Preet uh, Kaur, who runs South Asian Today, was like that. She found my handle. She sent me a message and she said, I'm about to launch South Asian today. And would you like to give us things that you've written to publish? And I was like, yes. Like no questions asked. I didn't need to, I, you know, no, you can't pay me. It's entirely volunteer run, whatever, whatever you need. We need some writers to give us pieces for our launch. Done. <laughs> because I knew it, right? Like I, I didn't intellectually know it, but I knew it right here. So when you reached out to me, it was the same knowing. It was like, oh, one of my kin found me. I'm supposed to say yes to this. <laughs> I love it. It worked in my favor too. I'm so glad that we connected. I really uh, yearn for that, especially during these isolated times. Yeah, me too. I think this this podcast is just a result of isolated times in a way because I missed connection so much. So I was like, I'm going to do something about keep it. Going. Please keep going. Um, you know, and it really doesn't matter how many people, you know, listen to it or tune in, you know, but it really does matter who does. Right? Yeah, this not is for me. It's it's not about like how many people listen. It's more for me. Like some, one day I think I can look back at it and be like, oh, I met all these amazing people. You know, yeah. that's that's my goal with this. 
and who knows, maybe these podcasts ends up being profiles in your, you know, set of biographies of South Asian women, you know, like maybe you have There's an idea <laughs> inside of you that is waiting to come out and a book auntie said today is the day you might want to think about it. <laughs> I, know? I'm gonna save your prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I mean, <laughs> usually, usually I'm, uh, uh, when I say things like that, they come to me from somewhere else. So I have a feeling that you will write a book. This sounds like a blessing. Like, yes, you can do it. Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, it was, it's been a tough time lately. So talking to you has been a gift. Thank you. Listeners, do check out Desi Bukanti on Instagram for updates on her upcoming book and her many, many recommendations. Thank you for listening to our conversation today. Hope you enjoyed getting to know our guest as much as I did. You can also watch a video version of this conversation on 11 Questions YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening. And if you like this episode, please leave a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at 11QuestionsPod for more videos and updates. And I'll be back next week with a new guest. Bye!